Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Thank you so much for being with us today, everybody. Uh, this is our first episode, our first recording in this new podcast adventure. Um, we are going to be discussing all sorts of things related to the Christian life. I will often, maybe most often, be sitting down with my fellow pastor at Zoe Church, John Hallowell. Pastor John has been a minister for the better part of 35 years. Uh, and he's been the pastor at Zoe Church since its founding, and we're we're now going into or we're now in our fifteenth year, and we both uh, minister in Southern California, in Orange County, uh, California in particular, and San Juan Capistrano is where our little church is. So this podcast is is going to be one in which we're hopeful about covering any number of topics related to. Christian history, related to literature, related to science, related to anything that might be of interest to, to listeners, and, and we will solicit and be interested in, in feedback and interaction with people. But we wanted to start off this opening episode in a particular way, and, and I'll, I'll do so by relating uh, an anecdote. Uh, several years ago, um, I was at Fuller Seminary. Uh, I had finished up my master's in theology, and I had returned to Pasadena because the great theologian uh, N.T. Wright, extremely well-known, at least theologian in the Protestant world, Anglican bishop, um, was returning to Fuller to give some lectures over the course of, I think it was like three days. And I remember being in this massive auditorium on the final day of the final lecture. And Dr. Wright has written, I don't know how many dozens of books, just unbelievably prolific. Uh, and controversial. Uh, there's a lot of things that I think probably John and I would agree with and a lot of things we would disagree with, but he is uh, a real scholar, a biblical scholar, historian, and, and so he was there giving these very sophisticated lectures on Pauline theology and, and uh, any number of things addressing sort of 30 years of his work. Seminary students packed out the place. Uh, professors from our school and nearby schools, people had, had traveled a little ways to be there. It was, a, it was a full house on that last day. And he gave a very erudite lecture on, on Pauline theology. At the very end, there was a Q&A. And one of the last questions in the Q&A, I think, came from a seminary student. And the question was something like this how do or what can you recommend for a student or a person moving forward given all these debates given this theological landscape given the political climate we're in it was one of these big questions like what what do we what do we need to do what, what's the most important thing we need to do like what do we need to study what should we focus on where, where should we go to do that kind of work it was this big question about like where do we go from here and N.T. Wright took this pause and kind of looked out at the crowd and said, I think the thing we must all return to or begin if we haven't already is reading our Bible and praying every morning. And he said, my career has been marked by any number of 
debates or travels to different places and discussions of different things. But if I, he was saying about himself, if I don't read my Bible and pray every single morning, I am not connected to the Lord in the way I need to be. And it was this simple, it was almost like a a Sunday school moment of what matters most. And it was like the last question on the last day. And I was sitting there and I could see this hundreds of people, scholars, students, all sorts of folks. And there was like this almost collective sigh, just, uh. and there was a lot of heads that began to slowly nod, especially the older people. And he didn't talk much longer after that and then thanked everyone for being there. But he basically said, the most important thing for me is not the books I'm writing or the debates I'm engaged in. It's getting up early in the morning, reading the Bible and praying every day. Without that, I am less and less connected to the Lord in the ways I need most to be connected. So it was a pretty beautiful moment, I thought, for this conference to end with. And it was so simple, and yet it reminded so many of us of the first and most essential thing, maybe, in in the Christian life and in Christian just practices. And so... Pastor John and I thought it would be a good place to start this uh, podcast, this reflections on the Christian life, with a discussion today of that simple thing, that daily Bible reading, that the, the dynamics of daily Bible reading, and and John, maybe then I would I would say or I would ask, do you think that it is as essential as as N.T. Wright? Was, was saying at that moment? Do you think it, it is really this fundamental importance um, for, for everybody, wherever they're at on the theological spectrum? Do you think it holds that place of importance today? Yeah, Dave, I do. Um, I have an anecdote from the other end of the perspe- uh, other end of the earth, actually, yeah. different perspective, not an anti-right, certainly. But I have a, a personal friend, Patrick Bailey, who has been ministering to the Bajau tribe in the Philippines for the last 19 years. And uh, I, uh, Kathy and I had lunch with uh, Patrick and Sherry uh, a couple weeks ago. And he's getting ready to retire and turn his uh, mission over to, uh, to others. And he was very reflective. And he, he told me about a study he, he did, a personal study he did in the last year, where he looked up everyone who had been involved with the Bajau ministry in Mindanao over the last 19 years, and he sat down and did personal interviews with them. Now, some of these workers had been, had been fired by him, had been let go for corruption, uh, stealing, morals, things. Uh, others had been uh, let go because someone else did the job better. Uh, and others had, had been there the whole time, and they were very uh, long-standing members. And he interviewed each of them, and he wanted to uh, find out their experience with his missionary effort. Uh, if, they, if they had a sense of uh, they're glad they did it, if they had a sense of regret or anger or what the issues were. And he told me that it really surprised him what he discovered uh, and we're talking probably over 100 people interviewing. He told us that 
he discovered that regardless of why someone left his organization or whether they were still there, that there was this predictor of fulfillment that the people who found fulfillment in being any part of his mission were those who had daily personal time with the Lord in the Word. And those who even were still there but didn't regularly spend time reading the Bible and, and, uh, and, and spending time daily in the Word, that they were unhappy even if they were high up in the organization mm. and successful. And I think the key was, uh, was what uh, you expressed secondhand that N.T. Wright said, that the connection with the Lord is, is reestablished daily. And it's reestablished in a, in a way that's proper and healthy and life-giving through the Word. Um, I think back to um, the history of the 19th century when uh, there was frustration with theology and uh, the new theologies from Germany were coming in. Uh, there was the Princeton theology, which rose up and, uh, and, it, and it tried to combat the incoming theologies of Europe. And uh, guys like B.B. Warfield and Machen and and uh, ultimately Cornelius Van Til, uh, they put together a theology that would, would resist any changes in liberal theology mm. coming from the East. And then there was the cultural um, protection provided by dispensationalism. Uh, the dispensationalists could explain why there was such a, a falling out of beliefs and culture, and, and there was, a, there was a, um, an, a, an attempt to resist any changes that were thought to be corrosive. Well, these two things congealed into the fundamentalism of the early 20th century, uh, where, um, where you had both the theological uh, fundamentals and you had the cultural fundamentals. And so Bible reading then became uh, kind of restricted in a way where your job reading the Bible daily was to confirm the, the uh, truths that were put forward by the Princeton theology. Mm. Your Bible reading daily task was to uh, see the validity of the cultural warnings of the dispensationalists. Mm. And it was kind of a, a uh, it seems like kind of a static um, sub-detail uh, 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 facet of Christianity to, to read to confirm. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that if people understood the value of reading in the 21st century their scripture, of developing a discipline that's not predetermined what you're going to get out of the scripture. Only the presumption that God is the author of the scriptures, and this is his his field, this is is where he works, I think it could be approached with a a vitality that would carry somebody day-to-day through the disciplines. It's almost as if the word of God is like this uh, mine, M-I-N-E, uh, where there's great resources and there's great, uh, great ore and there's great uh, value in it. Uh, others have, have dug in this mine and have left uh, piles of ore <laughs> around. Yeah. Uh, but if you go in there with a leaf blower and you say, I want to blow the dust off of some stuff here and recover something that was uh, valuable in the 19th century or the 20th century, uh, you're probably going to toy with it for a time and then give it up. 
Uh, but if you use some big tools and you go in that mine, you say, hey, look, uh, you know, this mine's been abandoned, but why? Uh, there's tremendous resources here. Let's get at the heart of this thing. Let's dig. Let's get the resources and let's get out of here what's in here. Uh, people are going to discover that God is in that mine. Right. And, uh, and, and it becomes a life-giving connection with the Lord on a daily basis. And so you're in, in part of that, just that brief little uh, history or that sketch, is a suggestion then I'm, I'm hearing that there are, are certainly better or, or worse ways of doing your daily Bible reading, that it isn't just the same for everyone or it's just some automatic thing and as long as you take your 15 minutes and you read this past, you're saying you're saying there's a way to do this that is fresh and alive, that's not deciding ahead of time what you're going to find, but is a way to carefully um, excavate or dig into the resources of the scripture for the purposes of life, um, but that there are ways to kind of avoid doing that. There are yes. ways to, to think that you're doing that, but actually just confirming predetermined uh, theologies or cultural issues or touchstone things that happen to be popular at the moment. Um, so is that right, that, that maybe there is a way or there are practices, you're saying, that are learnable, that it's not just this mystery of some people are really connected or some people can really see, but other people just don't see it that way. Yes. That there's a real procedure or skills that you could develop, that someone could develop to do this well. Yes, there are actually sciences that help. Um, I was listening to uh, an old um, interview with Eugene Peterson the other day. He wrote Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. And Eugene Peterson, who pastored at a small church, uh, spent uh, much of his life's work trying to develop this idea of spiritual theology, separate from pastoral theology. And, or uh, systematic theology, yes. right? like the Princeton kind of. Yeah, yeah. And, and his contention was that everything in the Bible is is livable, that none of it is esoteric, none of it is compartmental, that uh, doctrine and morals, they're important, but they're not the center of the, of the scriptures. And he makes a strong case that the, the Bible shows us how we should live in story form or narrative. It mm. is a story. It is a, a narrative lived. And, and so he he, uh, at the end of this broadcast, he, he made the case for instead of spiritual theology, he would name it lived theology. Mm. That, it's, that it's a human life well lived is, is really how you serve God and witness to God. Okay, so just in the area of what makes a story, what is a narrative, uh, since the 1980s, particularly the 1990s in the, uh, the Academy, Society of Biblical Literature, American Academy of Religion, a tremendous amount of scholarly work was done to show the components of a narrative. And there is actually a science to understanding a story. Mm. Stories have components. They have uh, atmosphere, character, tone, and plot, as the scholar Wesley Court uh, wrote out so well in his book about narrative. Uh, and you can analyze these uh, even as you can analyze grammar and you can analyze um, history. You can analyze narrative and the construction of a story. Well, if the Bible is all about stories put together, then it yields analysis. Another um, significant contribution to the sciences of daily Bible reading was uh, probably a more proper 
uh, revolution in, uh, in, in historical grammatical criticisms of, of the very late 19th century, early 20th century. A.T. Robertson, uh, of course, wrote the magnum opus of historical and grammatical mm. approach to languages. Uh, and, and understanding that languages uh, change and that there are trajectories in language and, uh, and that they can be studied and they can be understood. Now combine that with the uh, great project at, at UC Irvine in the um, uh, 1970s, the Soros Lingua Graeci, where all of extant Greek literature was placed in a database right, right. Uh, and, study, and studyable by scholars. Uh, and ideas of trajectories of meaning and, and understandings of, of why we have uh, particular understandings of words now this is being spelled out now in a, in a, in a more usable way. Uh, it, for example, it was uh, uh, discovered that the appearance of the scriptures in the Koine Greek greatly influenced the understanding of language and the definitions in patristic literature. The patristic, What's patristic literature? Yeah, patri just patristic literature, the language of the fathers who went back and tried to explain scripture by commentary. First three or four centuries. First of the three church. or four centuries. Right. Uh, the the meaning of words changed dramatically because the patristic period they were trying to understand scripture. They didn't have the language tools, hmm. uh, but they understood the language natively. And so they were unable to separate out the influence of the Christian. Uh, movement which was encompassing the world, and so they they explained words in terms of definitions that weren't actually there when the scriptures were written. Really interesting. So the patristics, they're talking about Greek and then Latin um, yes. speaking or writing, um, fathers of the church, oftentimes defending the faith or explaining uh, the faith in philosophical ways and other ways. And you're saying even though the, many of them were native Greek uh, speakers, they're 100, 200, 300, 400 years removed from the Koine Greek that the New Testament's written in, and they're importing definitions or meanings of words that are current for their time back into the scripture and, and trying to do yes. theology that way? Yes, and even, even, more, um, uh, even more misleading uh, is, is the application of particular definitions to words that yield an understanding of a scripture that was difficult to understand. Hmm. Uh, there are words like authenteo in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, usurp or have authority, which uh, for struggling communities of faith in the first couple of centuries, uh, laying down the hammer of authority was, was uh, one way of dealing with uh, the particular things going on in their midst. And so it became advantageous to say, well, this word authenteo meant usurp authority or exercise authority. But linguistically, the source lingua Graeci has shown that the word did not mean that until the patristic period. That oh, wow. It actually was a particular word that came out of Greek classics, particularly Agamemnon, and, uh, and it was uh, related more to a vengeful 
type of murder mm. of Clytemnestra mm. over uh, Agamemnon. And, and so there are, there are, there are um, things like that which and, help us understand And that one, I mean, better. we could maybe cover this in a different <laughs> yeah. episode. But you're talking about a scripture that has been used for centuries and centuries and centuries to talk about why women shouldn't teach or preach in the church, yes. right? So that's a huge issue. And you're just, I think, provocatively <laughs> suggesting yeah. that there are big stakes for getting the language and meanings wrong or for importing or reading into uh, the first century New Testament Greek meanings that were not even available at the time and that this, this happened. And that we have, mm-hmm. now you're saying we have these uh, really great resources yes. to, to kind of show where <clears throat> and how words developed and at what time to see what are the possible meanings for different Greek words in the first century, yes. rather than going to the third and the fourth to see that if they got it. Yeah, and it's important to provide a framework for daily Bible study so that it's truly Bible study. You have to build into it protection mechanisms so you don't uh, just fall back on on a common sense uh, 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 interpretation. There, There is a tendency called interpretive reflex in the human mind. Mm that the human mind will fill in any gaps it sees. <laughs> right. and, uh, and, and you know, because you've, you've hung out with, uh, 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 you've hung out in classes that I did many years ago of, of uh, this challenge of, of uh, Pinocchio, of what, what does it look like when, when uh, Pinocchio's in the belly of a whale? Mm-hmm. And uh, most people instantly flash on a picture of Pinocchio sitting at a table and Geppetto's pictures hanging on the wall, and right, uh, right, you know, and 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 the mind fills that in to try to connect, <clears throat> like you're saying, when they read like the biblical story of Jonah, um, and they they have this image in their head of what yes. it looks like to be in the belly of a whale based on a Disney cartoon. Yes, uh, and and it's with every single uh, scripture, our cultural. Uh, interpretive reflex wants to step in there. Mm. And, you know, this is one of the valid criticisms that Catholics have always had against Protestants, is we own the scriptures too fast. Right. We just dive into something right. go, that's mine, and you can get into a lot of trouble. Now, this is anecdote day okay. starting out, so I'm going to tell you another <laughs> yeah, one. Go for it. This actually happened in a slightly different circumstance, okay. but the names are changed to protect the innocent. I appreciate that. A young man had to be there had to be an intervention because he was going to approach a young woman and tell her that the lord had told him to marry her she had never met him oh okay so it's possible to put scriptures together Uh, for example first corinthians 7 36 they should get married and uh and john 13 27 what you're about to do do quickly <laughs> it's possible to put anything together and do any action you want to do right uh, and say I, the lord showed me and he confirmed it in scripture yes, and, and i'm going to do this so you've got to build in protections right uh, there's got to be a method to bible study uh, that builds in the protections but also utilizes uh, the latest type of disciplines so that you're not recreating a commentary from 100 years ago. Okay, so this is a good place to maybe ask this question then. People are probably thinking, um, but wait, I don't know Greek, and I don't even know a lot of the the, the things you were just talking about, this database. Like, How does the average person who is looking at this English Bible that seems maybe like fairly 
like straightforward in their reading. Uh, how do they make sure? There, are there things beyond? Well, you have to learn Greek carefully. Are there things for people who don't have the original languages in their in their toolkit where they can approach the scripture as a regular person living a regular life um, carefully? Like there's there's procedures that they can still employ without having to bust out all the commentaries and make sure that all the scholarship is. I mean, you know, so that it doesn't yeah. feel like this is impenetrable. It's only for a few scholars who understand how all these things should work better. Or Absolutely. And, and in fact, uh, you don't want to start with the Greek. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay, well, that's really important. Okay, yeah, yeah because what, what, you, what you're going to find is that very seldom does the Greek actually uh, add a nuance that's as valuable as the passage itself. And this is, you're already saying about just the story form or the narrative shape of yes. things. And just reading a, or doing work, word studies of a Greek word here and there is not going to even give you the meaning of the story, right? Yeah. Or that passage as a whole. Yes, ex- exactly. And, and that passage as a whole is, is, once you understand that, you have something extremely valuable and something that the Spirit of the Lord can work with you on to bring you insights that you need to be connected to his work in the world. So do you want to walk us through a, a, a way for people to just begin to engage with the scripture? Are there, are there steps that they can learn or take? Or how, how do you want to move us forward saying, okay, this is why this is important. And we oftentimes rush in, fill in gaps that aren't there, import meanings. We can get really confused or we can see ourselves everywhere and thinks things that aren't actually there in scripture. So what are sort of the, what's the best way of approaching this? Well, let me, let me walk you through a a way that I use and have taught sort of my bailiwick uh, through the years, whatever that word means. Well, and you've taught, you've taught how to read the Bible. You've taught this kind of Bible study for, for, for a few decades. So, I mean, this is something, yeah. this is not new. So, so let me go through this, yeah. not, not to promote this, but just to show you where things fit in okay. uh, and, and how you might fit in ways. Now, there used to be um, a method called inductive Bible study, uh, which, which you would basically ask a lot of journalistic questions, you know, who, what, where, when, why, and you'd analyze uh, a passage uh, based on uh, work that you would do. And that's fine, except that the Bible's not a newspaper. Mm. And so the journalistic approach really doesn't mine enough of what's there. Mm. So this is kind of like that only 100 years later. So it's based on an acronym, Iowa, the, uh, the, the state. It's yeah. easy to remember. And it's a two-pass um, system of Bible study or deep reading, which you can do in 15 minutes or three hours. Mm. Um, okay, so the so pass one is basically based on the premise of of the science of exegesis that our first task when we open up the Bible is to understand that there's a presumption that it's an, that it's authored by a human being who's trying to say something. Now that human being is inspired by the Spirit of the Lord. So the work is going to be really good. Mm. It's going to be um, of a high quality. But there's a human mind there. So, so you, you've got to understand that uh, you, you need to know, first of all, what it meant. You have to uh, look and say, well, this was written 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. What did it mean when it was written? That's the first task of Pass One. Okay. 
So pass two then, we're gonna go back through Iowa again, mm. and pass two is to determine what it means now. Okay, so you're, you're being deliberate about spacing that out so we don't yes. rush in to say, what is the Lord saying to me right now? I need to marry this woman. <laughs> we, yeah, or we don't want to put Geppetto's picture on the wall or right, right away. Or right, just putting, <laughs> importing our images or whatever. So the way that you recommend uh, doing this is having two passes or two ways of going through this step-by-step kind of little approach um, where the first thing of importance is not what do I think about this, or what do what does this mean for me? But the first approach is, what did this mean? What for them? did it mean? Original Past context tense. and its original audience. Yes. What did this mean? What was this author communicating? Who were the people listening to this? What did it mean? Okay. Now the first the first step is to identify. That's the I in Iowa. Okay. And you identify passages, not verses. What do you mean? Okay. Um, a passage is based on, uh, the technical word in the Greek is a pericope, a cutting around of a particular uh, paragraph or, or series of paragraphs that is meant to be read together. Um, the basic unit of, of, um, of, of communication is not words, it's sentences. Mm. Uh, and the basic um, way in which the Bible is to be studied are through passages, not verses. Verses can be strung together, as you, as you point out, to say anything. Right. Passages say something. They said something originally. So a passage or a prickby, a clump of verses together that are connected and are saying something together, like a paragraph or, or whatever we might by shorthand, you know, think about a clump of something that yeah. is communicating a meaning. Now, you have to identify the passage. Now, uh, you were talking about making this easy. Most contemporary translations, New Living Translation, ESV, uh, most uh, contemporary translations have headings in their Bible which isolate passages. Right. So you know when a passage starts and ends. Really deliberate. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in personal Bible study, you want to look those over because they aren't always the beginning and the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes there's a verse here and there from a previous chapter. I think of Ephesians 5, 21. Do you remember that one? Yeah. It talks about uh, mutual submission right before, as oh, I was talking yes, about marriage, yes, but it's yes. separated in the previous. But then uh, wives pass. submit. So, yeah, yeah, you, like, yeah you don't want to be advantageous and separate <laughs> out. <laughs> so so um, identify the, um, uh, the passage. Then you have to identify the genre of material. Now, there are a number of, of different genres in the... Um, in in the writings that are that make up the Bible and John genre is important because it's the rules of the game of how you're going to understand it mm. for example uh, the we have uh, a lot of sports in our world today and there are different rules for each sport okay uh, take soccer football and basketball for example now if I were to just tell you Williams kicked the ball how you understand that depends on what sport it's coming from. Hmm. If it's uh, NFL football, your question is going to be, did Williams start the game off with a kickoff? Hmm. Uh, did Williams punt the ball because his team can't move the ball and mm -hmm. they're punting all day long? Or did Williams just kick a game-tying or game-winning field goal with that kick? Mm. So the questions are going to be of a certain type depending on the sport, uh, whereas in basketball, your question is going to be, 
did the game stop right away? Did the referee see the <laughs> was kicked <he> ball? <laughs> did, was the 24 second clock reset to 14 <laughs> seconds or whatever the rule is right, now? Right, right. So, so the, and then in soccer, uh, you know, everybody kicks the ball. So <laughs> right. Williams kicked the ball. So what happened? <laughs> so, the, so the point is the genre uh, of, um, you know, is this is this uh, writing out of the mosaic uh, writings of the five books of the Pentateuch, where there's 616 commandments for mm. for a life embedded in those? Uh, is it uh, is it part of the Psalms? The rules of the genres are going to be different. Mm. For example, in uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, Moses is writing, but he's writing a revelation of something he obviously didn't see the creation of the universe. Mm -hmm. uh, he's being told that by God, it's being revealed to man and, and Moses is writing it and, and recording it. So it's really a, a God revelation uh, that's happening in that writing. But the Psalms on the other hand is almost the opposite end of the perspective. Mm. The Psalms is David in a cave feeling, uh, feeling rejected, feeling outcast, having uh, having this understanding that Saul's hunting him down and going to kill him. So he's in a cave bemoaning his plight in life, but he's trying to corral his soul to keep it faithful. Mm. So it's basically the very depth of human existence in the Psalms. So, so the rules are going to determine a lot of how you interpret it. So you, you must identify the genre also. Now, uh, you must identify the context, the surrounding context. So you've identified a passage, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and now you need to know the context within the writing uh, that, that the material has. For example, if you're, if you're in the last week of Jesus' life in one of the Gospels, uh, you, you need to know that what's at stake when Jesus is teaching. Mm. Uh, it, it adds to the understanding of the, of the seriousness, the depth of what's happening, uh, the urgency of the moment. Uh, so, so you need to understand the context, and then, uh, and then also there is this is where you bring in some of the historical grammatical um, uh, information. You need to know the historical context of what's happening. So you're making a distinction between the context within the book that it's in, within the narrative that's being our, captured. Let's say the last week of Jesus's life. Um, that lending a certain kind of tone or meaning to yes. urgency to his teaching to the last things he says before his execution but then you're saying then there's a context outside of that gospel which is the historical context of first century roman world yes judea whatever the case uh, may be, messiah movements everywhere right um the now here you have to be careful also that there's there's resources but like language and, gra and grammatical constructions, there's a lot of predetermined uh, research that comes out in books that says, hey, it was like this. And, mm. and, and they just basically redefine the belly of the whale to make it look like something you'd be interested in. You mm. have to really be careful of that. So you, your historical sources are really important that they have some measure of historical accuracy mm. to them and that the things really did happen that they're saying happened. But there are good historians, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. But, you know, and so if, if, if your resources mm. include that, 
Uh, you know, there used to be tremendous magazine-type resources, Biblical Archaeological Review, mm. uh, and those have pretty much gone by the way of magazines. But, mm. but there are resources which can help you understand the historical context. Just know this, that when John wrote the book of Revelation, 90 AD, there was a lot of persecution. He was under persecution. Uh, the, the world had a known uh, basis of, of understanding. So some of the things he writes about, mm. uh, you, need to, you need to identify his historical cultural situation. Uh, he's not writing during the time of the Maccabees, mm. and you will misunderstand him if you just classify him with regular apocalyptic literature. So you are saying, even for just the average person reading their Bible, that there does need to be, let's say, maybe a, a growing awareness or interest in identifying and trying to flesh out a little bit more of this context? Yeah, I mean, if we were to tell you there's a there's a uh, a, a ship sunk off of the coast of Southern California, and it's got gold bullion, and everyone doesn't like the water temperature here, so they won't go get it. You might learn scuba diving <laughs> okay, okay. in order to go down and get okay. it. I mean, <laughs> so you're saying, uh, yeah, maybe people at first would be be put off by, oh wait, we got to do all these things John says in order to understand the Bible. But you're saying it's the Word of God. Yes, it has the most value of anything a person could do. And uh, and so surely we we ought to be interested in doing it well or doing it yeah. better and being more sensitive. To well, and 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 the reality of, of the yeah. situation, Dave, is if you get some easy fly by night method, uh, you know, when I was um, first interested in ministry, I, I took a job as as an assistant pastor and researcher. And I thought I'm going to have to read a lot, mm. so I learned the Evelyn Wood speed reading discipline okay so i went to this went to the seminar they literally flashed sentences on a screen and then and then tested you for retention and they they developed in you this skill of just this flash instant of of uh knowing something and then stringing them together and and the rate of reading you could get to was phenomenal Mm. you could go through books and books and books fast but you didn't understand the books you read. You couldn't get anywhere with them. And and the reality is, if you learn some cheaper method of Bible study, you're not going to stay with it for a lifetime. Hmm. You're, and that's one of the beauty of, of, of passages is that the passages stay the same. Hmm. You may change your boundary here and there. You may add a verse or subtract a verse every 10 years, depending on your insight into that scripture. But you are are pretty much going to come back and visit that again. And you're not starting from scratch all the time. Right. What you learned that's true is still true. Now, what you learned as false is probably not going to help you 20 years from now. That's why you want to learn true stuff. Right. You want to build a healthy and accurate way of approaching the Scripture because, as you're saying, most people have trouble sticking with the daily reading at all. But what value is there if you're rushing into it and you're misinterpreting what is actually meant to be there? It's not going to be the value that it is supposed to be for you, and it can completely distort or confuse maybe even what the Lord would would want to be saying to you because you didn't take the time. And and why not have one book in your life in the world that you take care with? Why not have one resource that you protect and you guard in your heart you say, I'm never going to accept falsehood mm. when, when it comes to my understanding of this book. Mm. So, so the O in the first pass is observe. After you've identified, you then observe. 
Now, what you're observing in Pass 1 is the author's intent and, his, and what he is saying. And this is the language that he's using. Uh, no spiritualization yet. There's no like, well, right. you know, what did he mean by this um, beyond the, the grammar? You've got to get the, the first line of communication, the writing down first. So the author has, he uses nouns, verbs, pronouns. He uses repeated words and lists, figures of speech, contrasts. Uh, th- then the heart of the author usually can be seen in his pleas, in his passion, mm. Uh, how how passionate is he about this? Is he, uh, you know, and and so by observing the author, you are really entering into the communication that was first made to a particular audience, whether it was a letter of the New Testament or or just anyone in the in the the known world of the day who might want to know more about Jesus and read a gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, you you have to observe what's being said. So the, the W now in Iowa in the first pass is to write a creative record. Hmm. And, and I recommend a piece of paper that's like a scratch piece of paper. Uh, some of my most profound works have been on scratch paper. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I write in all different directions. Hmm. I write, uh, I, I insert arrows and put little figures to help me. And while you're doing this pass one, you should have your your passage uh, boundaries written on this, you know, Galatians 4, 1 through 11. Uh, you should have um, uh, notes like the, the, uh, the genre of the material, the context surrounding it, uh, any cultural things. Uh, and then you start writing down what you observe about the passage, what the author is saying. Mm. Oh, he keeps saying here strong words. Oh, foolish Galatians. Mm. Wow, that's pretty uh, pretty uh, passionate, pretty emotional. Circle that one. Mm. Uh, sometimes you can just print out your, the entire passage and then just write over the top of the printout mm. all of your notes. But the important part is this has got to be free form. It's got to be like the stuff that comes to mind is going on this paper and I even diagram sentences because uh, back when I was in junior high, we used to diagram sentences. Yeah, people don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> sentences, <laughs> sentences had a noun, a verb, a preposition. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, they had all these uh, things that came off of it. But the, the point here uh, is that you're, you're being creative. You're scratching out thoughts. You're building a mind map in your own mind here. Mm. Now you're studying the Bible. Now mm. you're studying it. You're not just observing it Mm. you're really digging in there okay and so then the a in iowa is analyze what did it mean at some point you're going to summarize paul means here in galatians in this passage that the galatians have left something really important Uh, i may have 20 minutes to do this in the morning and that may be all i get out of the passage Mm. paul's not happy with the galatians (laughs) so so a year from now, when I come back to that passage, I may I may understand that I didn't really follow uh, up enough mm. to know what he's upset about. Mm. So I might add to that knowledge later. Oh, he's upset because they're now want to they now want to add the law to following Jesus in the Spirit, mm. and and so now my my knowledge of what it said builds. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, so that's pass one. So that's I. So identify, <clears throat> observe write and then analyze that's okay. correct and and you're saying you know look do what you can uh, but if you do this that you're building this sort of lifetime sort of uh 
I don't know, stability or, or uh, you had described in the past um, passages like campsites where you you might go for the first time to a campsite and you might notice a few things, a big river that's nearby or something like this. But when you go back and revisit these kinds of campsites, especially as they become your favorites or whatever, you build on that. You begin to notice maybe what kinds of trees there are instead of just that there are a lot of them. Yes. Um, that if you do this carefully, even if it's a little bit in the morning, each morning, you will build on this over yes. time. And it can get really sophisticated. It can mm -hmm. be really simple, but it can also build to something very significant. For example, in Mark chapter 5, there's... Mark tells us the incident of Jesus and the Gadarene demoniac. Mm -hmm. uh, but preceding that in context is the story of the calming of the seas. And if you're connecting, um, uh, if, if you're connecting passages by looking at the context and the surrounding context and you put these two together, after you've known the Lord for 20 years, you go, voila, <laughs> there's something additional here in this sequence of events mm. that Jesus has stood up in the night and calmed the sea and spoken to the winds to die down because he's going to the other side. He gets to the other side and a man who's been tormented his entire life comes running to the shore and is able to worship Jesus. Mm. So his voice over the sea Kind of like, you know, our, our coastal um, fog here, it mm. kind of keeps that desert heat off. Well, mm. the voice of Jesus over the waters, getting to the shore where the gathering lives, uh, you know, and, and realizing this man is able to come out and worship Jesus, then all hell breaks loose as the demons go nuts. You know, right, what are right. you doing? Uh, but but the connection of the subtlety of those two contexts, mm. uh, you might not notice that for 20 years, mm. but if you're, if you're disciplined in the way you approach the Scripture, uh, you will make connections that you've never made before, that you've never seen before, because the writings are good. They're so, really yeah, good. Yeah, you're just saying if Jesus casts out those demons and says the man is was calm and in his right mind. Yes, right? and now the sea and the this man, are, man calm. are calm. And that was Jesus' goal from the, the start of the previous context. He was going to the other side of the sea. Mm. That's cool. So, okay, the first pass, um, you're saying, you know, as you get more comfortable doing this, maybe takes 10, 15 minutes or something to, to move through a passage. If it's the first time of the passage, you know, might go a little slower or whatever. Um, but then you're saying, okay, uh, then there is a second pass yes. uh, to, to, to get the most out of the scripture. And yet you're still using the same acronym, I-O-W-A, Iowa. Yes. So what is the second pass? We're on the I then. Okay. So the second pass is to identify the differences between then and now. Hmm. Uh, there are thousands of years automatically because the last scripture, probably book of Revelation, uh, end of the first century, so, you know, there's 2,000 years there. But if you're, you're talking about uh, the, the law and the books of Moses, you're maybe going 4,000 years or more uh, back. Uh, the differences between uh, now and, um, and then for the book of Moses could be covenant. Hmm. Uh, that's a different covenant. There are uh, different rules. This is the genre, uh, rules of the game, okay? We're not in the Old Covenant right now. At least I hope we're not. None of us <laughs> are. If you're out there and you're in the Old Covenant, abandon it quickly uh, for the new. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so 
so so you read a command yeah uh but but you say i'm not i don't have to go out and and stone my son to death because he mouthed off this morning right i'm not under that covenant not good okay yeah um so so understanding the differences between then and now uh, you you have to identify those differences. So you the first passage you had identified the the context. You had just been treating the passage and its genre and its world and its original author audience. Uh, now you're you're making the connection, but making the connection through the difference, right? Yes. So the first thing you're saying, okay, now is not then, and in what ways is that uh, fundamental? That now is not then. Yeah, you almost have to create the space before you can make the connection. Okay. If you make the connection too fast, uh, you know you're gonna be you're gonna be out starting an old covenant religion and telling everybody you read something in scripture this morning that's gonna help them. Right, and but this happens all the time. <laughs> it right? happens where, all the time, especially in American contexts where where passages that are for Israel and the old covenant are read as for Americans and. America now, right? Yes, yes. And now who's wading into controversy? <laughs> <laughs> Can we get into it? Okay, okay. So identify the difference, the differences. Yes, you must do that. You must establish the fact that I am reading this and it was written to someone else first. It's written to me ultimately, but I must observe how I'm different from them. Mm. I must observe that, that I have a culture around me that's that's in part define me. Uh, I, I'm not of the world, but I'm in the world. And so I, I, re, I have reflexes mm. that, are, that are tendencies of interpretation. And if I do not nail those to the wall, they are going to define what's in my brain. Right. The <clears throat> Pinocchio Disney movie comes back into exactly. Jonah and the Old Testament. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the first task. Uh, and then there is a. Um, uh, an, an overall observation of context in the identify second pass. There's a big picture, uh, which includes covenant, and we, we kind of discussed it, mm. includes covenant and, and, uh, and, and even um, the purposes of God, uh, for example, in, 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 a, a prof- in prophecy in the Old Testament and apocalyptic literature of John in the New Testament. Mm. Uh, there is a context of that. Uh, that 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 you've got to um, you you've pretty much got to observe. You, you know. You, what do you mean? Like, how is that different from just saying, okay, um, I did a little reading about genre, and I read about uh, prophetic literature, and it's highly symbolic, and it kind of works this way. So, in the first pass, maybe I, I did some of the genre, the rules of the game of how mm. that genre um, projects or, or yields certain yeah. meaning in those contexts. Now, what are you saying? That's okay. So, so for example, uh, uh, one of the greater prophets of the old covenant is lying on his side naked, telling uh, uh, very passionately, "Return to me," saith the Lord. Mm. Okay, mm. Um, okay. So, so there was a, a time in Israel's history where where God was calling Israel back to faithfulness through the voice of the prophets, and they wouldn't listen. Uh, he's not calling us today back to faithfulness in the same way. He's calling us today to Christ. Mm. So if, if you if you look at the prophet's actions, you're going to say, it's okay if I run out in the street naked. I'll just shake everybody up and mm. they'll listen to me maybe. And I'll tell them the end is coming. They need to repent. And of course, I'm you know I'm using hyperbole and exaggeration, but uh, but but understanding 
the context in which the the overall context in which the um, so you're saying the larger context of this is a old covenant uh, a call to return to the old covenant for Israel as a as a sort of a theocratic nation you know instituted by God in a very particular way um, and it has a domain and it has a time yes. in which those things were valid and in which those things were functioning. Now, now the, now the other step we need to take yeah. is your domain today. Right. Um, okay. You you might convince yourself that you are called to call uh, uh, your neighborhood back to repentance mm. uh, through the prophetic way. You must understand that you're in a context also. You're in a you're in a context that God has put you in. He's called you to be the salt and light of the world, but to do this with kindness and patience and the love of God, calling people to Christ, giving them the good news that God is not pissed off mm. and going to obliterate you. Mm. Which, he, which he says in, in the prophets. Yes. <laughs> that he will, or, or that he, you know, they'll go into exile or the, their, their country or their, their cities will be destroyed. Yes. Yeah. And, and so your approach to the things you're reading in the scripture is not that, hey, I got to tell my neighbor that if he doesn't follow Christ, God's going to be pissed off and take his flat screen TV away <laughs> and, and he'll live in misery the rest of his life. The, the context that I have to respect my neighbor is to realize that if he doesn't know Christ, he might know Christ mm -hmm. and that maybe, just maybe, uh, the kindness of God would lead him to repentance. Okay, so, um, so after identify this, the next step in pass two is observe. And this is a, um, a critical step and probably an enjoyable step for most people. Um, but you want to be observing in you what the Holy Spirit is doing. So you ask a series of questions of the Spirit. Is a truth being revealed here? Hmm. Uh, is rebellion being exp exposed? Uh, are there healthy ways here in this passage that I can see? Do I feel like something's healthy in this passage? Mm. I'm asking that because I'm asking if the Holy Spirit is showing me something. Mm. Is he showing me that, for example, that when a man responds to crisis in a New Testament passage by prayer, is he showing me that that's a healthy way to respond? Is he showing me that I do better instead of trying to get an action plan and change the world that I start on my knees or on mm. my face. Um, is, is there a warning or a discipline indicated? One of the most common experiences of people seriously studying the Bible is they'll understand God's trying to warn them if they keep going on the path they're going, they will step into destruction. Mm. Not necessarily from God, mm. but the way that they are living is destructive. Uh, and, and a lot of times you're reading a passage of Scripture and you realize, wow, that person's not as angry with God as I am all the time. That mm. person speaks with respect. That person acts as if God sees everything going on in the world around me. I don't act like that. Mm. Mm. Uh, I act differently than that. Right. And, uh, and, and so the, the question about um, uh, what's going on inside of me, it's a subjective question, but it's a, it's a question we're asking to find out if the Spirit of the Lord is speaking through the Scriptures. Now, you've got to be immersed in the Scripture at this point, or you'll start thinking about things that 
you don't want to ask these questions about. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So, um, so you need to have, so this, and this is the second pass you've been in the world of the scripture. You've been carefully looking through, you've been writing, you've been doing a little, little journaling, a little mind map. You've been kind of soaking in this, yes. in this particular place. So you haven't just been navel gazing or obsessed about your stresses and pressures from life and everything yes. else. It's kind of removed you a little bit from those immediate pressures so that you have the opportunity with that interval or that little space for to, to hear the spirit in a way that isn't just you again. Um, we're just giving some room for the Lord to be able to show you something in the passage that, that may begin to affect you or you may begin to notice more or well said. And, and so the difference between past one and past two, then on this point is that in, in past one, you're trying to observe what the author was saying. And past two, you're trying to observe if the Holy Spirit is saying something to you mm. because the word of God is able to divide asunder between soul and spirit. It's able to make distinctions in you mm. that that can't be made psychologically, that can't be made even from well-meaning friends. Uh, but the word of God is able to do that with the spirit using the word of God as his sword. And and uh, and so th the premise is that you're observing th in your present day context how this scripture is affecting you, uh, being used by the spirit of the Lord. Mm. OK, so so then the W in this pass too is another right pass, but it's a more formal right pass. Okay. It's a, I'm going to write a sermon. I understand this passage now. I understand things about this passage that need to be spoken. Mm. I'm going to write a sermon. I'm going to write a journal entry. I, I now have something here concrete that I want to put in my journal uh, that God spoke to me this day. You know, you're not to run stop signs anymore, whatever, whatever. Uh, so you're kind of you're moving from like that scratch paper, that free flowing and that first pass to now there's like a formal understanding of some kind. Yes. There's something here I want to hold on to. Yes. There's something that's emerged that's clear or may go out to others or may go out to others. Not in terms of I'm going to shout to them. I'm going to but I'm going to I'm going to write a song. I'm going to write a poem. Mm. I'm going to write on my blog. Mm. You know, dare. Carefully. Could happen. <laughs> could happen. Um, but it's a f more formal writing process where you're writing now a work. You're mm. writing a work that the Holy Spirit has done on you, initiated by your, uh, your connection with the Word of God, your mm. study. And, uh, you know, journaling, this is where journaling is beautiful. If mm. you study the passage and then you journal afterward at this place, you will have a journal that glorifies and honors God. And maybe you'll go back years later and read it and go, wow, I remember that vividly now and much more. And that's the kind of journal that is not just a, a record of past uh, feeling or circumstances, but is also this growing archive of understanding of passages of, of the word itself, where it is able to layer over time and be of even even greater value than just curiosity of yes. oh where was I at once upon a time you're you're getting real meaning that is growing over time that's being formalized and, and that you would have some record of and be able to return to and add to in those ways beyond just the emotional ways that, that yes you would, yeah yeah and there's it's so healthy mm. you'd be able to track your own progress and and on top of the fact that you could glorify God that mm. way. So, and then the final A is to analyze again. And now you're doing the big picture analyzation. What does, what does it mean? And then, and then equally important, but secondary is what's been planted in me. Hmm. 
Okay, so what does it mean? Um, the meaning of it all to, to, to right now. And it's not just a personal meaning. Uh, it could be extend beyond that. Uh, what it might mean for my personal Bible study is I have hope for today. Mm. The world has hope for today because God hears the cries of those who go off to work and labor and don't get paid enough or whatever the, whatever he has shown you, uh, you know, it's going to have a meaning and the meaning is present tense. And that's, uh, that's something you must always ask when confronted with scripture, when confronted with, uh, actually interaction with God. What does it mean that God has spoken to me? We run into people all day long and we just say, hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. And we move on. And it doesn't mean anything to us. Mm. You can never have an encounter with God and not ask, what, is it, what did it mean? Mm. <laughs> what did it just mean? And, and uh, you must ask that and you must seriously consider that or you're never going to change. You're just going to go about your own way. And then secondly, based on uh, James uh, 121, what's been planted in me? You're analyzing, you know, what did I just read about? What, what's in my heart now? What's in my heart now may be useful this week when I encounter a similar situation because this is one of the means that God saves us from the world around us is he takes something out of his word, plants it in our heart, and then we have a moment of crisis where we would go our natural human fallen way or we would remember that God's word said something and go with God's word. Mm. And that, that's what James says, is if we're slowed to speak and, and uh, we listen, and then we act from the word, from the, from the uh, word planted in us, that God will save us that way, mm. save us from ourselves and save us from the dilemmas around us. So you're always at the end asking, what does it mean and what's been planted in me? Because if you can see what God is doing through the word in your heart, mm. you, might, you might better see it in the moment of crisis three days later. And that seems so helpful to me. I think so often our, our spiritual, right? That even just that word, our spiritual lives can feel like this sort of fog of feelings, of experiences, but rarely articulated or, or, or slowed down. I think sometimes even just uh, having to open up or opening up a time at the beginning of our church service where people can give glory to the Lord. It's almost like we haven't done that. Or we haven't articulated those things, but if you give us a minute, maybe we can think about, okay, wait, where has the Lord shown up or where did the word come to life in me? But I think it's not necessarily our discipline or our habit or our practice to get to that level of actually articulating what did that mean or what did the Lord do here and and I would imagine and I know this at least in my own experience if we were to do that more consistently and regularly we would be more aware of our connection with the Lord we, we would feel less distant less maybe alienated or ignored or we would feel less of some of those human emotions that can kind of I don't know, mislead or can steer us here and there or, or, or influence our actions if we had this kind of more articulate sense of the Lord's meaning and the Lord's involvement in our lives and the connection we had with him if it was being articulated like yes. that. Yeah, one of, the, one of the biggest things I got out of studying Greek in college was that it slowed me down. Mm. It really slowed me down, sometimes to a screeching halt. <laughs> and I needed to slow down with the scriptures. I needed to just slow so much down that I had time to walk around in them and 
and consider them and think about them. So the discipline of, of daily Bible study slows you down, and it needs to slow you down. It needs to slow you down spiritually for exactly the reasons you stated, that mm-hmm. uh, we need slower. <laughs> yeah. uh, we need slower and less distracted. And, and if you're ever bemoaning the fact that it's hard to study and it's hard to be disciplined, uh, just just bemoan it and and cry about it, but benefit from it. Mm, just <laughs> you know? work through it. Work through it, yeah. The best things in life are, are, are hard, right? And the things that are worth doing uh, require those those disciplines and those habits to... And, and, and I think once you get those rhythms, right? I mean, you build them up, but once you get those rhythms, it becomes more and more how you see and approach passages instead of verses. Um, you know, just you start to learn your genre, you start to understand how the books are a little different and sometimes dramatically different, their styles, and that knowledge collects and builds and grows. Yes, and you're not just part of a hype uh, culture where you're saying, hey, I had this great feeling the other day, Mm -hmm. I discovered this, or I read my Bible and this happened and that happened. It becomes a little more personal to you of, you know, this is my, this is mine. I, I'm connected now to this scripture. I really identify with it. And and I don't just want junk laying around in my mind about this scripture. I right. want the truth here. And I want to be able to really find God in this moment. And and uh, yeah, it just does all the right healthy things when you, when you uh, slow down and do it right and do it in a disciplined fashion. And I think for us, and you know, one of the most important things is it then ultimately also really helps act as this antidote to contemporary agendas within the church a lot of times if not yeah i mean usually explicitly within the church but sometimes just political agendas it can be so easy to see people saying or posting or writing how you know this passage or this verse or this word you know in the bible justifies this position or this party or this this uh, action or this policy or whatever and if you're accustomed to approaching the scriptures more carefully and more slowly, you're going to be much less likely to just be swept along with other people's agendas and exhausted or confused with, wait a minute, I thought this was the Lord and how come it didn't work? Or, I mean, there'd be any number of things that this could keep you from being caught up in that, that could waste your time. Let's just, yeah. Well, and <laughs> on the, po- and on the positive side, yeah. it, it keeps you developing your own story in the Lord. I mean, you're, you're becoming someone who, who really wants to live theology rather than have doctrine or be a moralist and just always have the right behavior or make sure you're in the right direction. You're becoming very aware that, that God is working on you and there's a drama there. He might work on you more if you let him more, or uh, he might be doing really good things in you that are praiseworthy and that if you just see it, you'll be happy with God and you'll be happy with what he's doing in your life. And and so in the positive side, what what this discipline does, it keeps you away from those negative uh, forces, but it also helps you build your own narrative so that you're gaining progress in this thing called salvation. And it is directly attributed to the Word of God and the work of the Spirit in your life. Mm, I think that's a great place to to end it. We are not opposed to theology, but we are in favor of a lived theology that we have a deep and personal connection to. 
And we want to just encourage people to read your Bible every day, but read it carefully and, and maybe go back through this and, 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 and look at this approach of, of, of IOWA, of Iowa, of, of a two-pass little uh, system, a little way of approaching Bible study that can build in you these, these best practices that ultimately not to make you some theologian, but to make you connected more and more to what the Spirit of God is doing in your life. Pastor John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dave. And thank you for listening. I hope you will join us in future conversations. We really do want to open this up to a variety of things that uh, impact the Christian life, but we thought this would be a, a pretty good place to start. So thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe, and your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.